Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Welcome to this episode of the Speaks Exchange podcast with me, your host, Donald Taylor, and today's guest, Michael Osborne, who describes himself as a user experience-driven developer with a focus on accessibility. And Michael, it's accessibility that we're here to talk about today. Could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. I'm Mike Osborne. This summer, I have been in the industry for about eight and a half years. I come from a video games background and I spent the last eight and a half years designing simulations for some of the world's largest companies. And in the next few weeks, I'm due to be starting a new role, a company called Upskill Digital, where I'll be a learning experience designer and their mission is to use digital to further people's business and careers. So it's a role I will fit in very nicely and I'm excited to be joining. Fantastic. Michael, we're talking today about accessibility, which unfortunately has too often seemed like an add-on, something you have to sort of stick onto a project or a bit of content at the end to tick a couple of boxes. Your experience in this field, your knowledge of it shows that isn't the case. Why is accessibility so important? I think you've only got to look at the numbers really to to soon realise why accessibility is important. So the World Health Organization, who they estimate that in the region of 15 to 25% of the world's population, so about 1 billion people have a disability. If we take some UK statistics, 14.1 million people or one in five people have a disability, of which there are 4.2 million people, so about 12.8 of the working population of 32.6 million working with a disability and with up to 80% of disabilities hidden, it's likely that those figures are significantly underreported, both through fear of discrimination and not getting the job and other reasons such as disabilities going undiagnosed. And they might include dyslexia and ADHD as an example. Dyslexia, ADHD, you can't see it, but it's absolutely there. It affects how people interact. A lot of big numbers there. We're talking millions of people. But of course, when you say 20%, that's one in five. So if you are talking to 20 people, that's four people. If you are sharing some e-learning content with an audience of a thousand people, that is, well, 200 people. It's a lot. So we have to take it seriously, as you say. Does that mean necessarily that if we have to make things accessible, it necessarily means that it's a lesser experience for people who aren't disabled. Absolutely not. And even if we do have that perception, we can do much better than providing a Word or a PDF alternative as the accessible alternative. The Web Accessibility Guidelines, they don't permit people from using JavaScript and other interactive elements on their website. All they do require is that there is an accessible alternative should you need to use it. We've established it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Hopefully... In the rest of the podcast, you can tell us all the brilliant ways that we can tackle this. But what are the quick, easy wins and what are the common challenges that people are facing? Certainly. So, um, again, I'm going to touch on a, a few statistics here. 
Some of the common challenges might include people who experience dyslexia, which affects between 5 and 10% of the world population, around 700 million people. And to address some of those common issues, if you use sensible sans serif fonts, and when I say sensible fonts, it's avoiding things like thin fonts or overuse on italics, which disfigures how letters look on the screen. That, that is a significant win, especially if you pair that with using sensible font sizes. So as we get older, our eyesight deteriorates. But just for people with any kind of visual impairments, the larger you can make the font on your screen, the easier it will be to read and be perceivable. So um, certainly when it comes to learning, our focus on our choice of fonts should be much more on readability than style and design. At the end of the day, that's what's going to support the learning. Absolutely. Now, I find as someone who's in his late 50s, I typically don't buy Apple products. But when I do, I immediately have to get my glasses on or sometimes a magnifying glass, because I swear everyone in California uh, is under 30 and all have perfect vision. Uh, so I wouldn't regard myself as having a disability. But nonetheless, that's affecting my interaction with the product. So you said sans-serif font. Obviously, sans-serif font is one that doesn't have all the curly bits on it. It's just a straightforward letter. And you talked about having not thin ones, but ones that are sensible. Do you have any typefaces that you can actually name for us? Certainly. Many machines, whether, whether you're on Windows or Mac, have some common accessible fonts. So you're looking at Verdana, Arial, and although it gets a lot of hate in the end of the industry, Comic Sans actually has very clear figures and it, it is a very accessible font. And it's been found, hasn't it, that Comic Sans, don't knock it, people, is more easily read by people with dyslexia. Absolutely. Once we have addressed all our font issues, another thing we want to do is to start to look at our colour contrast. You always need a high contrast, certainly between the text and the background. And that's not just for people with colour blindness, although um, to throw some statistics in once again, colour blindness affects one in 12 men and one in 200 women. So if you take just two conditions, colour blindness and dyslexia, as you were saying earlier, Donald, if you have a even a course of 30, you're highly likely to have somebody on your course that will have a disability and will need some sort of adjustments. And those adjustments don't have to be necessarily significant. But on any course, um, you're looking at roughly one in eight people having a disability. So that's about three people in a group of four. The next thing we need to be doing is looking at our alternatives to text. So anything that is not text needs an accessible alternative. So um, if you're using images, those images need alt text. And if not alt text, they need to have captions. And if you're using any sort of multimedia, such as video, you need to make sure that you're using closed captions, subtitles, and providing transcripts for people. And when you have those subtitles on screen, again, you need to be thinking about the font size, the pacing, and even the contrast between the foreground and the background. There's no point having black subtitles if the screen behind you is predominantly black. I like watching video with subtitles on, even though I'm not hearing impaired. And it frustrates me immensely when there isn't blocking behind the text, because so often it becomes difficult or sometimes impossible to read. So again, that's a good example of what might appear to be an accessibility issue, actually benefiting a very wide audience. And generally, of course, I'm guessing that a high contrast helps everybody, not just people who might have difficulty reading. 
Absolutely. And if subtitles is something that you want to get into, which I absolutely suggest people do, they should absolutely check out the BBC guidelines on how to do subtitles. It's a fantastic resource that goes into a, a lot of depth on size, colour, pacing and all sorts. So there are many resources on the web that just happens to be one of them, but it's, it's a fantastic resource worth checking out. I'm sure in the last year with COVID-19 and the pandemic, more of us than ever have been working at home. And in that time, it's likely if you're a household of two adults and maybe like two children, if they're on video course, you've probably used subtitles in some way at some point. That's some quick wins that really we should all be doing when we create content for e-learning, shouldn't we? What's the next step beyond that? How can we change from simply passively putting things to our audience in a more accessible way? How can we give them more control? What's the next step beyond that? Well, the more control you can put into your users' hands, the, the better. I can give a few examples. So an easier win, perhaps next level, would be to give people a choice in how they digest their content. So a lot of people favour video in e-learning because it's an interactive way of learning. And if you have a transcript as an alternative, that's a, a great way of giving users, OK, how do you want to digest this content? Do you want to watch the video or do you want to read something? And again, that has benefits because if it's written, people can go at their own pace. I have a lot of friends who, if they're watching a video, the pace of the speaker can annoy them. Either it's too fast or it's too slow. And if they have a transcript that they can listen to in their own time, that's a great way of digesting the content in a different way. And then if you're learning, the more customization you can build into your platform, the better. Autoplay is quite a specific example. Netflix is particularly bad at this, so it's not, not a learning example. But if you have video that autoplays, that can be quite negative on the experience for anybody using a screen reader. Because the way screen readers work is they read what's on screen in a left or right fashion. And if you have video playing in the background, you can have overlapping audio, which is, as you can imagine, going to be quite irritating. If you have video in your platform, give people the option to turn off autoplay. And if you want to make your platform truly accessible, have it off by default and allow people to opt in. It's something most people won't think about, but that simple change of allowing people to opt in, it's going to make life an awful lot easier for people who are relying on screen readers. So that's a really great option. Thank you. And by the way, again, the example of transcripts, that's totally something which we should all be doing anyway, because some people much prefer to read than to listen, in particular to videos or to even podcasts, dare I say it. Let's talk about finding out more, Michael. Where can you find out more about all this? Because I know that you're an expert in this field. You've only just scratched the surface. What, what resources can you suggest to people? How can people take this more seriously and do a better job in serving the wider community? Well, first and foremost, and I don't mean to patronise anyone here, the web is your friend. So um, absolutely use Google and be quite specific. So if you want to find out how to do subtitles or why they benefit or even how screen readers work, Google those terms and be reading up on it. One of the best ways to learn about accessibility is to observe people interacting with the solutions and seeing how they go. I'd definitely recommend watching videos on YouTube of people using screen reader technologies, because then there you'll find where the pitfalls are. But if you really want to get hands-on, I'm a big fan of learning by doing. So I'd recommend, first and foremost, using screen readers. And if you want to try one, the NVDA screen reader is free, and you can get that from nvaccess.org. 
And with that downloaded, you'll soon experience what screen readers actually do and how they interact with your content. So with that installed, try then to navigate your website or your e-learning using your keyboard only. Quite often that would involve a significant use of the tab key and the index key. See how tricky it is to navigate your e-learning and website without a mouse. Can you do it? Then another thing to do, because I've used some color contrast examples, there are a number of great color contrast checkers on the web where you can take a snapshot of your screen or your designs. You can upload an image and then it, can, it will tell you your contrast. And some sites even go as far to say, does this meet accessibility requirements? So accessibility has different levels. And if you really want to strive for accessibility, AAA is about as high as you can go. And there are, are a number of contrast checkers that can do that. And similar to contrast checkers, if you want to get ahead of the curve on that, try using websites which come up with some accessible color palettes because um, the two hand in hand, you know, if you're being proactive and using accessible color palettes up front, then the checking you have to do later on is pretty significant. That's a bunch of useful resources there. Just to recap on the NVDA screen reader and the website is nvaccess.org. Again, we'll have that in the notes. I love the idea of watching people using screen readers and so on on YouTube. That's a really good way of getting a vicarious experience to see it without necessarily having to go out and find people to do it. How much is there going to be a contrast between me creating materials and then going through it? Because A, I'm not visually impaired, and B, I know the materials. If I go through it with my keyboard, am I getting a realistic experience of it? Or is it likely that I'm going to be persuading myself possibly that it's more accessible than it actually is? There's a little bit of both. So, you know, if you want to go almost like hardcore on that testing, you know, and you want to, a true experience, you can turn off your monitor, which will obviously make that a lot more difficult. But and the screen reader will still tell you wow. what's, what, what's happening in the background, which might be a, a slightly mind blowing experience. But, you know, the more realistic you can make it, the better you'll find it. But also screen readers are effectively text to voice software in a number of cases. And what you'll find by actually using screen readers is a great proofing tool. One of the things I've got in the habit of using text-to-voice software when checking my work is if you're just reading your work and you're very close to it, quite often you can have what's called blind spots. And whereas if you use text-to-voice software and that's something you're using a word which isn't the right word, but it reads right, therefore the cell checker picks it up. When you hear it, you appreciate those words are wrong. And is a great way of checking your work as well as improving accessibility. Mike, is enough being done in the field of accessibility? I suspect your answer is going to be no, because you've come up with a bunch of really straightforward, simple things that we can all do, which I know that typically people don't do. So I'm guessing the answer is no, but I'll ask you the question anyway. Are we doing enough? Again, I'm going to uh, give some statistics here things I find fascinating. So Level Access recently did a webinar on the latest state of accessibility. And when surveyed, unsurprisingly, 96% of people think accessibility is important. So that is great to see that people think it's important. But then they ask the follow-up question, and that's, are you doing anything about it? So out of 96 people thinking it's important, only 40% people are actually doing something about it, you know, and actually trying to proactively make their content accessible. Now, I don't believe that was a learning specific example, but it is quite a significant drop from nearly 100% of people thinking, yes, it's important, and less than half of people doing something about it. So 
I definitely think there is much more that can be done. What's behind that, Michael? I'm, I'm going to ask you to speculate. What's behind that gap between the feeling it's important and taking action on it? I think it's a multitude of things. Quite often it's awareness. I've spoken to a number of people and I've done a few sessions uh, for the learning technologies now and I'm doing many more this year. People don't normally design to deliberately exclude people. It's often done in ignorance and people aren't often aware. And the other thing is often time constraints. So people see it as a costly exercise and an add-on. Whereas if they can get business buy-in, so the business to train people on what is accessibility and what needs to be done, and they can invest in, in templates, they're actually going to save a lot of time up front because it's true, accessibility is an expensive add-on if you try and do it at the end. If you consider accessibility up front and use templates, you're making your life a lot easier and you'll save a lot of time in the long run because most templates from Microsoft Word, Microsoft PowerPoint to e-learning tools like Articulate, they are set up in a accessible way up front. So those little placeholders you have for inserting image, use those and use the text boxes provided rather than inserting your own text boxes because then you get into additional challenges such as um, the reading order being out of focus and the tab order. So I think accessibility overall is a intimidating topic and it's impossible to know where to start. One of the most common questions I get is where do I start with accessibility? I think as with any L&D intervention you're doing, the more you can know your audience, the more you can do up front and find out, okay, who is going to be on my course? Back in the days of classroom training, if you're providing food, you might ask people, do you have any dietary requirements? I think on those forms, whether it's web or physical, you can be asking people, do you have any accessible requirements? And then you can start to think about those alternatives. Do you know, okay, if I have somebody with ADHD or some visual impairments, do, am I, do I have an alternative ready to go for them? When you talk about templates, just before we wrap up, are these templates that typically come ready-made or are they templates that you have to create yourself? They often come ready-made. So if you open a new PowerPoint and you go to a slide master, there's often a template of layouts already created. Now, those layouts might not work for you, but what PowerPoint and Articulate just the same do is they allow you to insert more placeholder content. Like this is a standard layout on your screen and you think about the individual components. If you can set up your master slide in advance you know, as a template, that's one of the examples that will make your life easier. If you place your logo on the slide master, for example, and you provide alt text for that, or you mark it as decorative, that's going to save you a lot of time as opposed to your logo on a slide without alt text. That slide gets copied 28 times or so. So then you have 28 examples of one image needing to be fixed. And that's just your logo. That's before you've inserted anything else. It goes to show, doesn't it, how much this is a matter of caring about it in the first place which as the survey you mentioned said almost everybody does but then it's about the detail of just doing things right and I think as you said very clearly think about it from the start because it'll be smoother and quicker and it'll benefit everybody if you try to add it on at the end you're going to face quite possibly quite a lot of reverse engineering and it'll be more complex possibly more expensive and certainly more time consuming uh, any last thoughts before we go into our final question that we ask every guest, Michael? 
two final thoughts. So one is, if you're not making your content accessible to everyone, you're also not getting the most out of your people because all of us have something to contribute. Even if it's asking people, you know, can you access this? Do you have any challenges? How can we improve? Anytime you ask people if you can improve the experience, you're refining that process and you're improving the overall experience for everyone. The other final thought, and I hate to go there down the compliance route, is there are legal consequences of not making your content accessible. There's the Equality Act of, of 2010 in the UK, and there's Section 508 in the United States. Back 10 years or so, there was around 25 cases of accessible lawsuits. Or in the last year or so, that's easily crossed 400 uh, lawsuits. And that's on the increase. And a number of those lawsuits are repeat cases. So um, anything you do for the public sector, for the NHS, for the councils, that needs to be accessible. And if you're not, you're breaking the law and you could potentially face some significant fines. But let's end on a high one. Let's focus on the fact that it is important for everyone. Carrot and stick, you're going to get the best out of everybody. And if you don't, it could be very expensive. There we go. Final questions that we ask everybody, Mike. What do you wish you'd known when you started in learning and development? Okay, I'm going to go with a piece of advice I got from a coaching friend when I was working at Profitability. And that's, it's okay not to have all the answers. One of the things that held me back from doing facilitation uh, podcasts like this is if I'm asked a question and I don't know the answer, that's firstly going to reflect on me and it's going to reflect on my company. Whereas people understand that we're only human. If you say, okay, I don't have the answer to that, but I will look into it and I can get back to you. You know, people are absolutely fine with that. And they'll actually respect you for being honest rather than trying to give them false information and fob them off. I 100% agree. And if we did know all the answers, then we'd be in a very strange position. After all, we believe in learning. So let's live the fact that we learn as much as everybody else has to learn. Okay, so that's what you'd wish you'd known when you started. What are you curious about right now in learning? One of the things I'm most curious about is what's going to happen next you know, as a result of the pandemic. Now, there's a lot of research going into this, but I think that most of that is purely speculative. So what I'm very curious about is particularly what is going to happen in the next five to 10 years? You know, what new technology is going to come about as a result of people working at home? I've been working with some large companies recently, and I've seen some of the new technology they've been doing some of that, those things that we miss about face-to-face, -face, how can we do that in a live but virtual setting? And I'm a techie, guys. Anything that evolves on the tech space it, it has me excited. Sounds brilliant. Michael, your commitment to accessibility is fantastic to see. And we've all learned from you. So going back to your point about, yeah, you can't know everything. No, we can't. But we can, in a positive way, exchange what we do know. and help each other get better at it so i really thank you for helping the listeners to this podcast get better at doing what we should be doing which is making what we do accessible more widely so that everyone can benefit michael thank you so much